We trust that God speaks to us through his word. That's why we're here today. We need, in the light of that, we need God's message this morning. We need to hear what he has to say to us. And we find ourselves in a text that I guarantee you, no one else in town is preaching this side of our Cartersville campus. Okay, those, those of you who have already read the passage know exactly what I'm talking about. But all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So we're trusting that God has what we need this morning to equip us for the good works that he's called us to do. So today I'm going to tell you the story of a guy who has been given an incredible message from God, one that people have been waiting for for 400 years. And on the way there, he sinfully neglects to apply one of the key parts of that message to himself. And this almost has terrible consequences for him and his family. Yet God saves him in his mercy from his own foolishness and lets him share that important message anyway. This is the story about how that message finally gets to those recipients. Let's pray and then we'll jump into God's word together. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is power. It is life to us. God, we trust that that life this morning um, is sustaining the Sanfords this morning. We pray for them and we ask your blessing on them. We ask, Lord, that you would shore up their faith and, and cause it to be strong. Lord, we pray that your mercy would be shown to them, that you would wrap your arms around them, and that you would show them in so many ways, Lord, that even though this is a dark hour in their lives, that you are at work doing things that they cannot possibly um, they can't possibly imagine. I pray that you would be with them in a strong and powerful way. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth to us this morning, equipping us from your word. Lord, we trust that your Holy Spirit is here and that he is able to challenge us, Lord, and strengthen us and to make us new in him. I pray that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start at verse 18. Read with me. When Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you'll still say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So, Moses has just finished a, 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 a charge from God. God has given him the responsibility of going to Egypt, going back to where he once lived, and he's going to speak first to the people of Israel, and he's going to speak to Pharaoh. So the first thing that he does is to go and quit his job. He goes and he talks to Jethro, um, and he lets, lets him know, look, I need to head back and, and see the people of Israel. Of, uh, of of God, again, the people of Israel. And uh, so he learns, um, as after, after he turns in his reg resignation notice, um, and he's not going to be a shepherd anymore for Jethro, he learns from God that those who have been seeking his life are now dead. We found that out um, a couple of chapters ago, but God now reveals that to Moses and lets him know, look, the way is clear for you uh, to go back. So Moses has built a new life out here in the wilderness in Midian. He's got a wife, Zipporah, and two kids, Gershom and Eliezer. Eliezer is going to be formally introduced in um, chapter 18. But this is an awesome uh, part of the passage because it, it tells us that, um, that Moses is responding in obedience to God. You see, Moses has been confronted by God and, and, and charged with this responsibility and Moses can't go back. He's heard what God has to say. 
He can't turn around and do anything else because he can't unknow God at this point. He can't unhear the voice that spoke to him through the burning bush. He can't forget the sight of it uh, burning. He knows that God has sent him, and so he obeys. Well, there's a lot of this word go in, the pas- in this part of the passage. Um, Moses asks Jethro, please let me go back to my brothers in verse 18. And, and then Jethro says, go in peace at the end of that verse. In verse 19, uh, the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt. And then um, in verse 21, uh, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt. So this uh, Hebrew verb, yalach, keeps on appearing again and again in this passage. And it remind, it's a reminiscent of uh, Abram's calling back in Genesis 12, that Abram was supposed to go. He was supposed to leave his home country and go to a place that God would show him, that he was supposed to follow God wherever the Lord led him to go. So we see Moses leading his family on mission here, right? They've got their station wagon packed up. They've got all of the, the, the good travel games, you know, travel bingo, and they're going to count license plates on the way to Egypt. Uh, Zipporah is going to be giving, feeding the kids goldfish and, and uh, Cheerios in the back to keep them from continuing to ask the question, how long till we get to Egypt, uh, over and over and over again. So Moses is leading his family on mission, and Zipporah is supporting his lead. We also see that Moses has the staff of God with him. We're going to talk more about that in future chapters, but that staff is important because it represents God's power and his direction. And uh, so he's going to use that staff as part of how he uh, demonstrates the power of God to the Egyptians and also to the people of Israel. So Moses is sent on God's mission. Moses is also sent with God's message. What is the message of God that he is supposed to proclaim? First of all, the message is in part in signs, signs and wonders that, that, that Moses is supposed to perform before Pharaoh. And God tells Moses in advance what the result is going to be. He says, Pharaoh is going to see the signs and, he, and God is going to harden his heart. Now, those of you who have read Exodus know that this, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart is talked about and explained in at least three different ways um, throughout the book. It's said that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. So God is active and at work in Pharaoh's heart. It's also said that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then there's a neutral description which says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. So how do we reconcile all of these things if we believe that God's word is true, we know that God knows what he's talking about as he, uh, as he writes his word. So how can all of these things be true at the same time? Well, to, to, uh, to explain that, I want to use an illustration. And the illustration is of your own salvation. Think about it for a moment. Why did you trust Christ for your salvation? What made you place your trust in him? Why did you look to Christ instead of continuing to look to yourself for salvation, instead of continuing to go in the direction that you were in, you placed your trust in Christ. Why was that? Well, you can see that clearly you did make a choice. There was an act of your will that was involved, but you were free to make that choice because of something that God was doing in your life. He was in the process of changing your nature He was making you new. And so you were making a choice that was in accordance with what God was doing already in your heart. God was at work, and so you were able to be free to make that choice because of the work of God, the work of grace in your lives. So Pharaoh, in this situation, is going to do exactly what he wants to do. God is at work hardening his heart. He is also actively at work hardening his own heart. He is doing exactly what he wants to do according to his nature as a sinner. Even though God is graciously giving him sign after sign so that he is without excuse before God. 
Let's look at verses 22 through 23 to see what Moses' message verbally is supposed to be to Pharaoh. First of all, God is speaking to Pharaoh about Israel. And he declares Israel to be his firstborn son. Now, this indicates a relationship that God has with his people. That it is close and personal and affectionate. That God would call Israel and personify him as a firstborn son. Well, the New Testament also speaks of Jesus as a firstborn son. You may remember from our study in Romans, verse 8, 29, said that Jesus was the firstborn from among many brothers. In Colossians 1.15 says that he was the firstborn of all creation. And then Colossians 1.18 and Revelation 1.5 talk about how Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So why is Israel then called God's firstborn son, if that's what's going on with Jesus in the New Testament? And the reason is because the nation of Israel is what we call a type of Christ. Ben read a scripture just a moment ago that included that, that term, a type of Christ. This is a persistent symbol that is used in which God presents a type in the Old Testament, a symbol, a picture, if you will, and it's like a coming attractions of what Jesus is going to fulfill in the New Testament. So let's look at an example of that that uses the same uh, verbiage in both Old Testament and New Testament. And one of them is going to refer to Israel and one of them is going to refer to Jesus. Hosea 11.1 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So God is through Hosea, he's, he's recalling salvation history here. This is after the, the people of Israel have been brought out of Egypt. And he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. I had this personal relationship with him. And I called him out of Egypt. So he talks about the firstborn, Israel being a firstborn. And then in Matthew 2, Joseph is taking Jesus and Mary to Egypt to, to prevent them from, prevent um, Jesus from being killed by Herod. Matthew 2, 14 through 15 says this, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So Jesus is being, uh, excuse me, Hosea is being quoted in the New Testament to talk about how Jesus is the fulfillment of this type, Israel, in the, in, uh, Israel being the firstborn in the New Testament. So we need to learn more about what it means to be a firstborn son in this culture. It means at least two things. Number one, a firstborn son is favored with inheritance. He's favored with the inheritance. He's given an extra portion in the inheritance because they're given the inheritance early in that culture, early enough that um, the firstborn is able to take care of uh, the, the, uh, the, the father and the mother as they grow older. So the firstborn is responsible with that extra part of the inheritance. So firstborn... First thing is inheritance. The second thing is that the firstborn, in a special way, represents the father to others. So not only does he get the inheritance, but he also represents the father. That means that he can go and he can, uh, he can engage in business transactions on behalf of his father. He is the firstborn. He is a representative. <clears throat> so let's look at inheritance and representation in the life of Israel. Israel was supposed to inherit the promised land. And God talks about that to the nation of Israel in Exodus. Israel is also supposed to represent God the Father to the nations. It's said that, um, that Israel would become a light to the nations, that all peoples would be drawn to God because of what they see happening in the nation of Israel. Well, unfortunately, we're going to see that Israel fails in both of these things, both of these ways in which they are supposed to represent God and, and to use in his inheritance the right way, and a better firstborn is needed. So let's look at Jesus, the better firstborn, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus here is the perfect heir of all things because he perfectly obeys the Father. He does exactly what the Father commands him to do. And his character and his actions perfectly represent who God is, and they point people to God. When they look at Jesus, Jesus says, they see the Father. So what else does God say to Pharaoh? God commands Pharaoh to surrender. We see in this passage that God has declared war on all who would hold his son captive. God has a fierce love for his son Israel. Now, the actor Liam Neeson has gained a lot of prominence over the past 10 years because of a particular movie. The movie Taken, right? Where he plays a father whose child is taken away from him. And you probably, if you've seen the film, you could probably recite the speech that uh, Liam Neeson gives to that, to that kidnapper on the phone, how he talks about how he has a very particular set of skills, right? Um, that, can, that can make him a nightmare to, uh, to, this, to this guy who is holding his daughter captive. So you can read these verses in kind of a Liam Neeson tone, and you get the right idea behind what, what God is doing here. God says that he will stop at nothing because he has pledged himself in relationship to Israel like a father. He's going to make sure that he brings his children home. All right, so before we dive into this next section, this is the reason no one else is preaching this this morning, okay? I want to, I want to make clear a couple of relationships. Moses has a wife, and his na her name is Zipporah. We haven't heard her mentioned in a couple chapters, so just want to run that by you again. And then he has a, his firstborn son is named Gershom, okay? So when I talk about those two characters, you'll remember who, I, who I'm talking about. All right. Uh, verse 24. <clears throat> At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Well, that didn't make it into the Prince of Egypt movie. <laughs> Wonder why. Wonder why. Okay, so this is a little bit of a confusing passage. It's probably the most confusing passage in the book of Exodus. So we're going to do our best with it this morning. It's a confusing passage because we don't know who some of the he's and the hymns are uh, in this passage. So when, uh, when it says, At a lodging place on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death, we don't know who that is. And then later on, um, it translates uh, when it says uh, that Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. The word Moses is not there in the original Hebrew. Okay, So there are ESV translators are making a little bit of, a, of, a, of an assumption there, and that's fine. Um, but just so you know, that, that is not there in the original languages. Uh, and so when he says, so he let him alone, uh, we don't know who that him is. We know who the Lord is, but we don't know who the other him is is. So it's also confusing because of this language of the bridegroom of blood and who in the world Zipporah is talking about. So I want to walk you through some options. I'm going to let you draw your own conclusions because really um, the, the application of this is the same regardless of which way you look at it. So let's look at a couple of things that we know about the passage. That we want to work with the hermeneutical idea that we move from the clear things to the things that are unclear. So let's start with the things that we know and go to the things we don't know. First thing that we know is God is seeking to put a male someone to death in this passage. Second thing we know is that Zipporah is circumcising her son Gershom and placing the foreskin at this male someone's feet. Third thing we know is that she says that someone, a male someone, is a bridegroom of blood to her. Fourth thing that we know is that God, God's wrath abates when she does this and he leaves a male someone alone. Okay, so far so good. So let's tackle one of the questions. Who is the him that is being threatened in, uh, in, our, in verse 24 here? 
First option is Moses. Moses may be the one whose life is being threatened here. And I think that's the, that, that's the tack that the ESV uh, is probably taking here. Moses, if, if you believe that, then you believe that Moses is being held accountable for God for not circumcising his son. So he's being directly held accountable and he's dying for his own sinful neglect. The best argument for this, I think, is that Moses is not the one who's doing the circumcision. Because if God was, was attacking Gershom in this situation and threatening his life in some way, then you'd think that Moses would get up and circumcise his son. He would do something about that situation. But Moses doesn't. So if you're, if you're on this team, you believe that Moses is incapacitated in some way. He's a little busy with his life being threatened by God to do anything about the circumcision that he needs to do for Gershom. So that's your best argument if that's your team. Team two, you may believe that the him that's being talked about here is Gershom himself, the, the, the firstborn son of Moses. So if this is the case, then you're believing that Gershom's life is being threatened here because of Moses' disobedience. So if this is the case, then this is indirect discipline of Moses. Gershom's life is being threatened because Moses has been disobedient. So you may say, well, that's, that doesn't seem fair. Why should the child be threatened or die because of something that the father has done? And yet sometimes this happens in the Bible. Uh, an example of this would be in the life of King David. When he commits sin with Bathsheba, they have a child together who doesn't even uh, receive a name in the, in the biblical text, um, and that child dies. And God says that it's because of David's sin. So we see elsewhere in the Bible that, yes, this does happen. So that could be the case, that Gershom is the one who is being threatened in this situation. If this is your team, your best argument is that um, that firstborn sons are being talked about throughout this section of the passage. That um, Moses, excuse me, um, Moses' sons are being talked about when they're getting on the donkey. You've also got um, Israel being called the firstborn son. And then you have Pharaoh's son being threatened directly before this passage. So you kind of look at it and they go, okay, well then it follows that we're talking about Moses' firstborn son being threatened in this section of the text. The good news is that regardless of which conclusion you come to here, the message is clear. God is displeased with what Moses has left undone in terms of not circumcising his son. Okay, so that part is clear. The, the application of it is very clear. The second question I want to try to, to look at here is whose feet are being touched with this circumcision here? Whose feet are being touched with the foreskin? Because the answer helps to clear up then what Zipporah is saying and who is she saying it to? What does it mean when she says a bridegroom of blood? Super weird for us in our culture. I'm sure it would have made a lot more sense to the original readers. So whose feet are being touched? Um, well, one thing we need to know in order to kind of unpack this passage is the word bridegroom has a range of meanings that are used throughout uh, the biblical uh, text. One of them is simply the word bridegroom. Another one is like a father-in-law or son-in-law or something along those lines. Someone who enters into, both, both terms are someone who enters into a family relationship with you because of a covenant. So this is the basic meaning of the word hatan, and it can be applied in several different ways. So, option number one, Zipporah is throwing the circumcision at the feet of Moses. If this is the case, then what she's saying is that you are a bridegroom who has been redeemed by blood. Ordinarily, people are redeemed by the blood of an animal sacrifice, but in this case, perhaps it is, he is being redeemed by blood in a different way. So, uh, so she's saying uh, that... She, he is being redeemed as a bridegroom by blood. Option number two, you believe that Zipporah is instead putting this foreskin at the feet of Gershom. So if you believe this, then what you're saying is that I think that the word bridegroom here is being applied in a wider way. It's like a kinsman. So she's saying to Gershom, you are my kinsman, 
who has been redeemed by blood. And she's saying that you are joining the family's life, their spiritual life of your family, through the circumcision. So regardless of which team you pick there, again, the application to the original audience is very clear. This passage is here to highlight the importance of the covenant of circumcision because Moses does not do what he should have done in this situation. So what's the big deal about circumcision? We need to talk about it for a moment. I know it's your favorite topic, um, but the Bible talks about it, so we have to talk about it. It's all through the New Testament as well. Genesis 17 is a good place to start with God laying out the covenant of circumcision to Abram. It says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So a few big takeaways from this passage about the covenant of circumcision. Number one is that it was a sign of the covenant for all generations. So this was supposed to be the way in which you displayed your faith. You were trusting in God. This was the ritual that you underwent in order to show that you were a covenant member if you, if you were a male. And again, it is for males that are eight days old. So you would have been circumcised on day eight. We see this happening in the life of Jesus as well. Anyone who is not circumcised, according to this passage, would be cut off from God's people. They would not be a part of God's people anymore. So it is an outward sign of faith and trust in God and his ability to keep covenant. The problem is that circumcision is only an outward sign. It's only what things look like on the outside. In and of itself, circumcision doesn't save anyone in the Old Testament. Salvation is something different. Salvation means that God is performing a work of grace in your heart that works its way outward into the rest of your life. So God talks about another circumcision, a circumcision of the heart in the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So this circumcision is a circumcision of the heart that results in a changed heart in which you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul. This passage also talks about at the end there, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. A changed heart is going to also mean that you live, that you have been saved. This is Old Testament talk about um, you, you being given a new life. So you may remember the most, one of the most commonly quoted verses in the New Testament is Habakkuk 2, verse 4, when it says, The righteous shall live by faith. That means that you have been given a new life because you are trusting in God's means for salvation. You realize that you cannot save yourself, that you need him to do the work of salvation in you, that you need to be given a new heart. So it is this circumcision of the heart that God is looking on in the lives of individuals. Paul spills a lot of ink in the book of Galatians. If you want a New Testament um, uh, response talking about circumcision, that's your book. It talks about how the work of Christ supersedes the work of external circumcision. So Paul is essentially addressing a situation in which uh, there's a group of people who have come in and said, you know, trusting in Jesus is great, but you need to be circumcised as well. And Paul is saying, if you do that, you're throwing out God's means of salvation to you because you're trusting in faith and works together. 
And he's saying that is not the gospel at all. So to try to add to it means that we don't believe that God's uh, means of salvation are sufficient for us. We don't need to have a circumcised heart. It would be like this. It would be like someone saying, in order to be saved, you have to trust in Christ and come down here to the altar and pray. I hope that some of you will pray today with with some of our, our, our prayer team. That would be awesome. But that's not going to save anyone. It's not going to save anyone. That, is, that would be a work. If we are trusting in Christ plus coming down to an altar, um, that would be Jesus plus something else. And we don't believe in that. That's not what the Bible teaches. Or um, you have to place your faith in, in Christ and be baptized in order to be saved. We're going to unpack that. Ben's going to talk to you about that in Baptism 101. If you're interested in baptism, we will talk about that further. But baptism doesn't save anyone. It is an outward sign of an inward grace. It's something that God has done in your heart. So the Bible teaches that the work of Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. Our faith is not then this this power that we kind of work up in us and then we finally cross the finish line and touch Jesus' hand. We've placed our trust in him after after wrestling with it and, and thinking about what we really want to do. No, Faith is simply trusting in Christ. It's just saying, I give up. I give up trying to work and and do it on my own. I realize that I need someone to come and to save me. It's a transfer of trust from us to Jesus. So in the Old Testament, circumcision is faith expressing itself in action. It was the way of expressing faith to God and a trust in his saving work. And this is why it was such a big deal in Moses' life. Because Moses was going to be the leader of God's people. And what God is saying is, look, you're about to teach an entire nation of people that having faith in me is not important. And that obedience to me is not important. It's not necessary. So this is something that's much bigger than just a neglected ritual in the life of Moses. It's a big deal. It's the big E of, of the, on the eye chart of Moses' message here. This is, the, this is trusting in God by faith. So, Zipporah, who's our prototypical tent peg woman, right? Zipporah demonstrates faith then on behalf of her family. Moses should have been the one to circumcise his son on the eighth day. He did not do it. And it's beautiful because instead of Moses, it's his Midianite wife a descendant of Ishmael who demonstrates faith. How would she know how, what, what's going on with circumcision? Well, the Midianites did practice circumcision, and she's the daughter of a Midianite priest, so she's familiar with what's going on there. However, the Midianites uh, would have circumcised as a part of uh, someone becoming a man, um, you know, later on in their life, age 13, or later on maybe even um, right before they were married. Um, That doesn't sound like a very good deal uh, to me. It sounds very memorable, but not in a good way. Um, So there's that. Um, But Moses um, has been saved in this passage once again, or or his son Gershom, depending on how you read the passage, uh, has been saved through the courage and the faith of a woman. So once again, a woman who acts quickly and courageously in faith. Love that. Love also the fact that God's choice is not based on nationality because she's a Midianite, but on God's will and his purposes in salvation. His covenant of grace, he extends to people, to all different nationalities. Praise God for that. All right, so let's, we've done all this work to unpack this text. Let's make sure we apply it so you've got something to take home with you that God can use in your life. Let's, let's, let's wrestle with it a little bit personally. Application number one. Are you trusting in God by faith? Are you trusting in God by faith this morning? If your answer is yes, then I have to ask you, what is the evidence of Christ at work in transforming you? There should be some evidence. Let's look at a quote here from our friend John Calvin. He says, It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. So the first part of what John Calvin is saying here is that it's faith in Christ alone that God uses to save you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And yet the faith which justifies is not alone. So true saving faith is always going to be accompanied by works. We're going to do something because we are saved. I'm going to use a bit of a negative example here, but I hope it will be of some help. So one of the ways that we know that there's something wrong in our body, maybe an infection or something like that, is that we get a fever, right? We start running a temperature and we feel ill in our body. There's, that fever is a measurable symptom of something that's going on with us that we probably can't see inside of our body. So we see the evidence on the outside of something that's going on on the inside. This is what should happen between salvation and works. That God is doing something inside us by grace, through faith, our salvation means that things are going to happen outside, that people are going to see, that we're going to see in our own lives. Let's look at another quote here from Martin Luther. It says, It is one thing that faith justifies without works. It is another thing that faith exists without works. So, he's saying, Christ alone, justified by faith in, in what Jesus has done for us. We know that that is true. This second thing he's saying is an animal that just doesn't exist. That faith exists without works? No such thing, says Martin Luther. And this is why we emphasize that discipleship is a process. You'll see those words on the outside of the, the foyer there. Love, devotion, passion, and legacy. Love is the idea that the gospel comes to us, that God loves us through Christ. That transforms our hearts and makes us new. And when then we begin to respond to God in devotion, we place our trust in him, we begin to study his word, we devote ourselves to community, we also begin to serve others. That's passion. We serve others. And then legacy is all about us making sure that that message continues to go out so that people can hear it generation after generation, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. So Paul tells us, in uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. So if we love the Lord, if, excuse me, if we don't love the Lord and want to obey him, then is, in there, is there saving faith at work there? If we don't feel any grief over our sin, we just don't care about what God thinks and whether or not uh, what we have done is wrong, is is there salvation? Has there salvation take, taken place in our lives? If we've never seen any life change in us, then can we say that we are saved? Is it possible that we placed no trust in Christ and therefore were not saved to begin with? So Paul encourages us to examine our hearts to see if we are in the faith. Well, Gershom being circumcised is an act of faith. And and their family is saved because of it. Um, or, or rather, he is saved, or, or Moses is saved, depending on how you read the passage, because of that act of faith. So, I want to encourage you today, act, have faith in God, and act in accordance with that faith. If there is saving faith that has happened in your heart and life, then act out that faith. Application number two. This one's going to sting a little bit. Is your faith being lived out at home? You can't read this passage and not see that there's a connection between what Moses should be doing at home and what is going on in terms of God confronting him, that there's sin that's taking place. So I have to ask you the question, is your faith being lived out at home? Let me start with the men, because that's what God would have us do, right? Men are supposed to take responsibility for the spiritual and physical care of their households. A good example of this is with the story of Adam and Eve. You'll remember that when Adam and Eve both sin and both eat of the fruit, God comes to one of them and holds that person responsible. Who is it? It's Adam, right? God comes to Adam. God holds Adam responsible for the spiritual care of his household. So in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5, we're going to be reading that together with our forge groups this year. It's going to be awesome. It says, in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present 
the church to himself in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So men who are husbands, God calls you to be a husband to your wife that will make sure that she is being fed spiritually, that she has time to seek the Lord uh, on her own, that you are reading God's word with her and talking about what God is doing in your lives. God wants you to take the lead and help her to, to, to be sanctified, to be set apart in her heart with Christ as Lord. That's your responsibility, men. Their responsibility to respond, your responsibility to initiate that, make sure that she is being led and fed. Secondly, God talks to men about their children. Look at Ephesians 6, 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Zeroes in on the men here. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So God wants us to make sure that we are engaging with our kids and pointing them to Christ. Now it's easy for us to forget in the hustle and bustle of life how important our role as husbands and fathers is. And it's why God emphasizes it when he talks about church leadership. It's a requirement for eldership in passages like Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. The elders are supposed to be the ones who are leading and setting an example for the church. So God wants us to lead by example, men, to show our kids how important Jesus is to us. So let me ask you, what directs your life? Is it a passion for Jesus or is it a passion for self? Which one is it? How do you point your kids to Christ? What directs your life? Do you read your Bible, the Bible, to your kids or with your kids? Uh, if not, if you don't know how to do that, we have a great family discipleship curriculum that we use um, back here. We, and we uh, post things on our website that help you men. If you've got younger kids, you don't know what you're doing, you can open up that curriculum. We'll teach you how to share God's word with your kids. We have some great resources for you. My next question is, do you needlessly allow things to get in the way of your family attending church? Do you prioritize your family being here in church because your kids are watching you? They're watching to see what, get, what dad thinks is important. You play that role in their lives. You can point them to Jesus in that way. All right, let me talk to wives and moms for just a minute here. We have a great example in this passage, of course, with Zipporah, who is a faithful wife and mom in this passage. Such a good passage to illustrate how wives and moms can, can be an influence in the lives of their husbands and children. For a negative example of this, we see Eve. Eve is supposed to be a helper to her husband, isn't she? And instead, what does she do? She offers him some of the very fruit that, that tempts him to sin. So God wants wives to influence their husbands instead to Jesus and to point them to him. You are there, wives, to be a helper to him, to help him as he leads the charge um, to, to lead your family towards Christ. So what do you do if he's not doing such a hot job at leading the family? Well, 1 Peter 3 talks about that. 1 Peter 3 Verses 1 and 2 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of your wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So ladies, you are supposed to treat him better than he deserves. You are supposed to show him grace, show him a picture of what it looks like, what Jesus is doing for him, what Jesus is offering for him in what you do and how you say things. All right. You also have an opportunity to speak into the lives of your children. Look at Proverbs 1.8. This is a great verse for moms as well as dads. It says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. The whole, most of the book of Proverbs is really about instructing not only the people of God, but instructing the family. It's like a discipleship manual in a lot of ways uh, for children. So, Moms, you can speak God's word into the lives of your kids. That is part of your responsibility as well, and your privilege to do that. All right, let me talk to singles, those of you who do not have 
a household. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35. I'm not going to put it on there, but I'm going to summarize it for you. You can go back and look at it yourself. It talks about how unmarried people have a special gift, that they are not divided in their attention to the Lord. They're able to focus exclusively on Jesus and on serving him. So nothing else needs to compete for your interest. If you don't have a husband or wife, you can give your attention exclusively to the Lord. So whatever station God has called you in, whether you're a husband or whether you're a wife, whether you're a single, live by faith. Trust in God. Let that, let that faith express itself in what you do. Well, God is going to give Moses another chance. He has royally blown it. He has missed one of the key uh, things that he's supposed to be um, communicating to others in, in, uh, in his message. God is going to use Moses to fulfill his word. Let's look at verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So Moses has been all over the place over these past few chapters. He has been impulsive and violent. He has argued with God. He has failed in his obedience to God's commands. And yet God has been faithful, not only to Moses, but also faithful to accomplish his purposes through Moses. And things work out exactly as God had planned. All of Moses fretting and throwing his hands up in the air is for nothing. Look at this. Aaron comes to Moses and participates in God's plan. So this is amazing. We don't get a lot of details about this, but somehow Aaron is supernaturally directed to, to Moses, right? No texting. Hey, are you going to be at Sinai at four? Like that's, that doesn't happen. Uh, and there's no GPS that's guiding him uh, to wherever Moses is. Like Aaron just gets to Moses. That's, that's amazing. But, but Aaron comes, and then he goes along with what Moses has been shown. Uh, in verse 14, that's what God said would happen. So God called it, and then it is fulfilled. It really happens. And then Moses and Aaron gather the people of Israel together in Egypt. They see the signs, and they hear God's promises. And they believe, they put their trust in God, just as God said it would happen. Verse 18 said that they would listen to Moses. And God had prepared their hearts. And now when Moses speaks the good news that God has come and God is going to save his people, the good news bears good fruit in their lives. And Moses, even though he has been arguing with God, he's not always done what God wants him to do, Moses gets to see the backs that were bent under, bent under the weight of slavery, bowing in freedom and worship before the Lord. Isn't that awesome that God uses imperfect people to do his work? Then let's look back. Remember how the book starts with the, God's people in bondage in Egypt. They were crying out to God and asking him for help over and over again. Well, it's taken five chapter or four chapters but finally God has arrived on the scene he has sent Moses to declare his word and they get the answer to this prayer that they have been praying for these many years God has heard his people and God has seen their affliction and now God is visiting them as he sends a deliverer into their presence well God also said that he would visit his people later on in the Bible, by sending a Messiah, a firstborn son that would save his people from their sins. And he came just as he said. Luke chapter 1, verse 68, records the words of Zechariah, who's prophesying um, about Jesus. He's, talk, he's going to prophesy about John the Baptist, but he says this about God's work in his life. This is John the Baptist's dad. 
He says, blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's the same language that's used in verse 31 here, that God visits his people. So Jesus comes. He puts on flesh. He has physically visited his people. He has become our Savior. Well, perhaps you can see yourself in this story today. You know that you, like Moses, have fallen short of God's best. You have fallen short of his commands and his purposes. You have sinned. You have failed. Or perhaps you have neglected his commands. The good news is this, that Jesus came to save sinners. He can restore you, and he can use your life just as he did the life of Moses. This is is the message of the gospel, that God takes broken people and restores them in Christ. Or perhaps you can see yourself in verse 31. Perhaps there is a situation that, like the people of Israel, you have been crying out to God about, and you feel like you don't, you're, you haven't gotten an answer. Well, the good news is that God has visited his people in the person of Jesus by stepping into our world, into the difficult situations that we experience every day. And Jesus has given us a greater sign that God is at work, a greater sign than the signs that Moses has given, the sign of an empty tomb. Because your greatest enemies of sin, death, and Satan have been handed their defeat. And God is at work even now in the midst of your circumstances. And he will not stop all of his redemptive work until it is done. God's fierce love for his firstborn son is still working deliverance in your life, redeeming and rescuing you right where you are today. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for this message. We thank you for the ways in which it challenges us to live out the faith that you have given to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to miss the obvious things, that we should trust in you by faith. And God, for the ways in which we fall short, we ask that you would cleanse us, that you would set us apart for your purposes. God, that you would give us faith to trust that the message that you send us with is not about us. It's not about our skill. It's not even about all that, that, that we are. It's about who you are and what you have done. Please encourage us today. Help us to walk out of here ready, Lord, to, to, to share our faith with others, ready to serve our families, ready to trust in you in, in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.